I invite you to turn in your Bibles once again to Romans chapter 9. We'll study together verses 14 through 18. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. Hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Thus saith the word of the Lord, may he give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the wonderful truths that are in the scriptures. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, your ways are high. And very often you conceal even the outline of them from the sight of your creatures. Yet, Lord, you have revealed yourself and have spoken clearly of your eternal love and mercy unto your people. Father, as we study this passage of Scripture, work in us that we would see it not as a hard truth but as a magnificent grace. Father in heaven, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 9 is deep water. These are serious, large, expansive doctrines. They are, in a sense, incomprehensible. We can't get our minds all the way around them. However, they are prolifically clear. And last week as we studied the previous verses, verse 6 through 13, we were introduced to the question of the Apostle Paul, who understood very clearly that these were high and deep doctrines. He asked the question, Is God true? Or in another way we may put it, are his promises good if Israel has not come to faith in their Messiah, Jesus Christ? And the Apostle Paul answered the question for us and he said, no, the promises of God have not failed. They were made to the people of God And they still extend to them. They haven't even quivered or wavered in any part at all. The Apostle Paul directed us in our attention to the reality that not all Israel is Israel. 
that the children of Abraham are not simply those who are physically descended from the man, but rather they are the children of the promise of God. And so he also introduced us to this specific doctrine of divine and sovereign election. In verse 13, we read together, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This distinction between persons, one household, yet brothers who stand in different relation to God. Both having a father who loved the Lord and had received promises from him, rather only one son receiving the promise and not both. And it's hard Every parent in the room knows it's hard because we want the very best thing for all of our children. We want the oldest, the second oldest, the second middle kid, and the youngest all to love the Lord. We want them all to grow up in his righteousness and all to experience the love of God. Yet what we're being told here in this example is that salvation relies on the heart of God not on men, not on things we might do, not on things we have done, but only and uniquely on the heart of the God of heaven. And you may come to the passage and you say, well, that sounds a lot like predestination. You've said election, but this sounds like predestination also. And these are two doctrines that are intertwined and married one to another. Predestination, that God actively ordains all things that come to pass. Everything. The doctrine of election. And likewise chooses those whom he will save. Before time. Before time existed before anything was created, before the foundation of the earth stood, these things already were in the mind and in the heart of God. And you may be saying, well, that's hard. That's really difficult. And I want to say to you that that's natural. If you're sitting here this morning, even if you've long been Presbyterian and Reformed and that these are central truths to your hearts, can you really say you're comfortable with them? You may revel in it, you may be thankful for it, but are you really comfortable with it? Because this doctrine naturally confronts our own sense of control. It says you don't decide your destiny, God does. Moreover, it says you are not your own savior, the Lord is. It's a hard yet wonderful doctrine. And I just want to say that the Apostle Paul knew it was hard. He anticipated it, and in the wisdom of God, he gave us questions as if he's saying, now I know you may feel uneasy, I know you may not be able to put words to why you feel uneasy, but maybe this is the question that's on your heart. And so previously, he gave us the question of the success, the failure, the truth of God's promises, and now he gives us yet another question regarding the fairness or the justice or the equity of God. And so I want to dive into this expecting that in God's grace he's going to shepherd us by his word and that his voice is going to lead us to see these doctrines not as difficult hardships but as wonderful, sweet 
mercies. So the three points I want us to consider this morning are very, very brief. The first of them, verse 14, election. Election. Returning again to verse 14, going through 16, mercy. Then verses 17 and 18, purpose. Election, mercy, purpose. And so let us give our attention again to Scripture. I invite you to look back there with me, starting at verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's promise of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, But Esau, I hate it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Why did we back up to verse 10? Well, it is so that we can see the context that produces the question in the minds and the hearts of an average person who reads this portion of the Bible and is honest within themselves. And this is the depiction. There's a woman who receives children by the mercy of God. And she has twins. And they're boys. There are two of them within her womb. And what Paul is telling us is that while she's still pregnant, before a child has said a word, has done any act, that nonetheless and indifferent of anything about the child, God chose one and passed over the other. Now, just hearing that, you say that's partiality. That's hard. That's a difficult thing. It's, it's not something I'm very comfortable with. And let me just say, if you are comfortable with it this morning, let me invite you to get a little uncomfortable. As a parent, it should make you uncomfortable. Because I'll tell you, with very recent experience, every single father or mother wants the very best for the child in the womb. And also, as they're born, you want them to be healthy. You know, I find myself asking my wife bizarre things that no man normally would think about unless his wife is pregnant and he loves their children. How big is she this week? Well, you see, she's about the size of an avocado. Well, how about next week? How big is she? Well, she's a little bit bigger. She's up to a grapefruit. And you go on and you just wonder, well, baby, I'm waiting, but it seems like she is a full-blown watermelon at this point, right? Is she healthy? She's healthy. And then you find out all these little things about the child. Uh, The wife will tell you all sorts of things because women follow this much closer than men. But you come to find out that babies, whenever they're within their mother, they're covered in these tiny little hairs that protect their body. All these magnificent things. Their heart's developing. And this week, the cornea of the eye is developing. And you're following along as if you're watching a sporting event that you're terribly interested in. You want the best for the child, and you're praying as a godly father and as a parent, pleading with the Lord, Lord, keep my baby together. I want her to have five fingers and five toes on each hand and each foot. I want the child right. I want her the right size. I want her to be healthy. 
and happy, and I want her to be born. Moreover, Lord, I'm going I'm to go up, I'm going to whisper at the belly, Jesus, and I want that baby to jump around. I want her to kick like John the Baptist. You want everything right. That's the context. And then the sovereign election of God, the choice of God, breaks into this happy moment. And Paul speaks clearly of the eternal truth of the choice of God regarding the salvation of his created persons. One baby will be mine, and one baby will not be. One will be an object of mercy, and the other an object of wrath. It's hard. And a friend, I'm telling you, if you don't come to this a little uncomfortable, you're strange. You may not be altogether human. You ought to check your pulse. And I just want to say that very often whenever this conversation of election or predestination comes up, it has been my uniform experience that just saying the word brings real serious responses and reactions. One way or another. Opinions just flood in. Everybody's got an opinion. It can divide friendships and families. It can divide classrooms and theological faculties. This is a thing that is significant because within it we are talking about something that divides heaven and hell, the love of God and the wrath of God. That's what we're talking about. It's nothing more or nothing less than that. And it is something that rightly humans like us struggle with. And some of you may be struggling with it this morning. Because another portion of it is this. It says to you very clearly, you do not control your life or your destiny. God does. It's in his hands. And some of you are visiting this morning and you think... Well, I'm a bit uncomfortable, but what did I expect? I'm in a Presbyterian, Reformed, Calvinistic church, and here we go. I want to encourage you this. I just read scripture to you, but I haven't begun to expound and preach it. I've given you no explanation. We're going to get to that. I just read the Bible to you. And if you're uncomfortable with that, you're uncomfortable because the Bible is making you uncomfortable, not me. The Bible is confronting you, not me. Now, it's very normal to kill the messenger. Every preacher knows that. However, I just want you to be confronted with that. And if you're struggling with it, if you're uncomfortable, I think it's just, you know, okay. It's normal. It's what the Bible expects. And it's why the Apostle Paul writes this verse and the way in which he does to help you. Verse 14, he anticipates the question that's going to arise from the reading of this. And he gives you this question, the question of God's fairness that he wants to explore with you. And I want to encourage you. I've got three encouragements as we dive in to the doctrine uh, of election that I, I want to help you. And I want to encourage you uh, to, to let yourself um, be encouraged by. Uh, the first of them is to encourage you not to say that the Bible doesn't teach election just because you're uncomfortable with it. I want to encourage you to read it 
read it again, to go slowly, and to remember that it is not simply your word, but it's the word of God. First encouragement, not to say the Bible doesn't teach election just because you're uncomfortable. Second encouragement is not to say that the Bible means something else when Paul labors to be clear and he builds his own explanation on Scripture. Now that's the tendency of so many people. They hear this doctrine of election that goes all the way from Romans uh, 9, 6 all the way to the end of the chapter basically. The teaching on election and predestination and people will read it. They'll say, yes, it's there. I'm committed to the Bible. However, I don't know what it means, but it can't possibly mean what he seems to mean with it. That's just as much a denial as saying it's not in the Bible. It's there and Paul labors to be clear. You may not get an exhaustive knowledge of this high and deep doctrine, but don't just explain it away as unknowable. As if the Bible doesn't try to teach you because it does and Paul does right here. The third encouragement is this. Rather than doing either one of those things, stop and be honest about what you're reading. This is the word of God. This isn't John Calvin. This isn't a commentary. You're going to hear my exposition of this but remember that the things that you're most irritated with are just frankly bare readings of scripture so stop be honest consider whose word it is and lean into your discomfort and as a disciple of Jesus Christ accept the teaching he has for you and then devote yourself so far as you can understand this doctrine to search the scriptures So that the Lord would give you the answer. So that the Lord would minister to you and care for you. I want you to struggle through this doctrine because I do believe that, again, this is not a doctrine of the exclusion or the hardship of God, but rather a doctrine that shows the Lord wonderfully, powerfully loving to undeserving creatures. And if you believe in Christ, that's you. This is the story of your salvation. And so let's move on to the explanation of the Apostle Paul, verses 14 through 16, where he introduces us to the ideal of mercy and the economy of the election of God. So in verse 14, we go back to Paul's question. We haven't taken it up formally, but it's this. Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice? And you may ask the question, are we talking about civil justice? Are we talking about a courtroom? Is it this kind of justice? And I want to encourage you that I believe this is the question of fairness, of equity. Is God behaving in the same way to all of his children? That's the question. Is the Lord, in essence, being fair and good to all? And I'll tell you that this is a simple question. And it's one that I hear all the time in my house. I'm not going to tell you from whom but they're short. I hear from all of them. The question of fairness. Some months ago, there was a birthday in our household. This has happened more than just once. Uh, And one of my sons, whose birthday it was not, 
whose birthday it was not, looked at his brother, the pile of gifts that were given to him, the birthday cake that had his name scrolled on it as best as Elise and I could do with one of those squeezy things. And with tears in his eyes, he looked at me and he said, Daddy, it's just not fair that my brother gets all these gifts and I don't. Any of you ever felt that way? You're at a thing that celebrates another person and you think on that person and then you back away into a selfish corner and you think on yourself and you say, well, I would like to get that. I would like to get that, uh, that adoration, that approval, that honor that that person's getting. I want that. And you adults are going, no, I, I got over that a long time ago. My sister and I, my brother and I, we signed a treaty. We're past all that in life. But let me ask you, are you jealous of some other person's position, their honor, their job, their finances, their house, or other things that they enjoy? And you think, it's not fair. I'm just as good as he is. I'm better than he is or she is. I deserve this. I deserve that on the things that I've done. I deserve that promotion. I deserve that pay. I deserve those things. For the couple of preachers in the room, I preach better than him. I deserve that pulpit. This kind of thing. You see, we understand this. We don't really have to be taught the question of equity. And Paul is saying whenever we talk about the doctrine of election, it's not about equity or you being paid what you deserve. Is God unjust? Is there injustice in the election of God? Paul answers in strongest terms in the Greek language. By no means. Let it never be said. He could translate it in that way. Absolutely not. That's how he answers the question. And then like a good father, he takes the hand of each of us and he says, here you are, you're looking for fairness, but let me show you mercy. That's where your attention needs to be, child. When we talk about the election of God, you better be very thankful. It's not on the grounds of fairness. It's on the grounds of mercy. It's on the mercy of God. And as he directs her attention to the mercy of God, what does he do? Does he just make an argument? No, he goes to Scripture. I invite you to turn to Exodus 33, 19. That's what he quotes in the verse of Scripture that we have before us. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Turn there. Exodus 33, 19. This is the context of Moses and his pastoral interaction with God on behalf of the people of Israel. And these people have sinned against the Lord. They've done so in idolatry. They've done so through wickedness. And and here, verses uh, 12 through 19 that I'm going to read to you, we have a prayer that is conversational with God. So Moses face to face with the Lord. Exodus 33, 12. Moses says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, again, this is Moses speaking to the Lord, verse 13. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please show me your ways, that I may know 
you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. You see, there's a distinction. The knowledge of God and the favor of God towards Moses. And then he's saying, remember these people. They're your people. Verse 14, he said, my presence will go with you. This is God. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses says to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord responds to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. You have found favor in my sight, he says, and I know you by name. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Verse 19, the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And do you get the back and forth of the conversation of Moses to God? Moses is saying, Lord, you tell me I found favor in your sight. But how about your people? You've told me that I'm going to go into this place that you've promised. But how about your people, Lord? How can I know? He's saying, Lord, you tell me I found favor. You show me how to walk. Lord, you tell me I found favor. You've got to go with all of us, all of us, all of these people, this whole nation. And so Moses is arguing with God like a lawyer. He's saying, they're all your people. Don't forget them. You say you love me, don't forget them. And then what is the Lord's response? And this is what Paul is getting to about the election of God. This is what Paul is getting to. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I have favor on you, but it's up to me who it is then that I should choose. That is what is being said to Moses. That's what Paul picks up on. It's this doctrine of election and the mercy of God. And this is where he's directing us in that all of these different things that we're talking about, this this heart of God to his people, that it, when we're talking about election and who the Lord's going to bless, it's, it's not dependent on who they are as a nation. It's not dependent upon the household from which they come from. It is dependent solely and freely on the mercy and compassion of God. That's what he's saying. And it's simple. God will pour out mercy as he delights to do so. It's mercy that God's people receive in election. It is God not giving them what they fairly deserve. That's what we're talking about. It is his withholding of wrath. That's why we even talk about salvation. Saved from what? Saved from whom? Saved from God and his just wrath that his creatures deserve. Do you understand? God can freely do as he wills. It's an amazing thing that the Lord would have mercy on anyone. 
And yet, we're still people. We want to argue with God and say, look at what I deserve. This is the salvation that I want. This is, this is really, Lord, I'm your people. I'm part of your nation. I'm part of this, that, or another family. Lord, these are things that I deserve. And Paul says, friend, if you really saw it the way God sees it, you would understand that any, any mercy or any saving grace of God is a mercy. It's his restraining the extension of his just arm against you. It's mercy. It's kindness. It's a good thing you don't get what you deserve. And I want you to see another thing that I think is implicit in the passage, and that is that God's mercy is free. And that's the point that I think is also made by the text. And it's free in two ways. The freedom of the mercy of God. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, the Lord says. It is free from influence. You understand what I'm saying? The mercy of God is not because you look really cute or because you're intrinsically valuable. Moreover, it's not even because you're an image bearer, and that is valuable. It's not because you might do good things, you will say good things, you will preach good sermons, you're going to do great things, and so the Lord chooses you on the grounds of that, not at all. Moreover, if you back away from it, you'll have to say this, it is not negatively because you're the most needy. It's not as if God looked and he said, I want to pick the worst sinners, and out of those worst sinners, the worst of the worst, those that are going to be the most horrible, that I'm going to save them. No. It's free and according only to the choice of God. He will have mercy on whoever he will have mercy. He will have compassion on whoever he will have compassion. That is the reality. And he's free to do it. And he doesn't base his decision off of anything or anyone, but only on his delight and his heart. That's the first aspect of the freedom of the mercy of God. The second is this. It's free to you. It's free to you. Now I just told you it's not influenced about who you are, what you've said, what you've thought, or anything of the sort, or who you're going to become, or who you won't become. It's free to you, and because it's not dependent on all of that, it is a true gift, not because you're good, not because you're bad, not because of anything you can do, you can't purchase it, and you don't need to. It is a free, wonderful gift. That's it. It's dependent on him. It's out of the wages and the expense of the blood of his son freely given to you. It cost you nothing. It cost him. It cost him his son. It's freely given to you. And the Apostle Paul doubles down on it and in verse 16 makes the point. So then it depends not on human will, your deciding for him, or exertion, the things that you have done. No, no. It doesn't depend on either one of those things. What you want, that you would want him or not, or that you did good things or not, and he restates his case. It depends upon God who has mercy. God's the Savior. He's the only one who can ch choose to not extend his wrath against some unto salvation 
taking that wrath and putting it upon his son. That's his decision. That's his choice. And that's what mercy looks like. God's mercy is free. We move on and Paul goes into the second portion of this discussion of the electing grace of God, his purposes. Verses 17 and 18. So let's read that together. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. What's Paul doing? Well, again, he's returning to scripture. He's pointing to Pharaoh. We've already talked to Moses, the one who at some point was a companion and a preacher even, uh, to Pharaoh. And it's the Lord's engagement with a man who heard the, the call of God to relent, repent, and release. And who refused again and again and again until he was driven into the ground. And he's dealing with this second portion of the election of God. Yes, God elects those who will be saved, but likewise also God elects those who will not. That's what he's looking at very directly here. And oftentimes, as theologians discuss this, if you're going to read a book about this and you're interested, we call this double predestination. God elects those who will be saved and all things that should come to pass. Likewise, he also elects and chooses those who will not be saved. He predestines some to glory and others to destruction. And that's heavy and it's hard. And if you're not uncomfortable with that, you should be. It's uncomfortable. That's why it's here. That's why Paul points to the Old Testament. He makes his argument and his evidence, not just from New Testament things, but the whole of the body of the Word of God. He's speaking very clearly. And so if you have your Bible, turn back with me to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. I want to read some of the scriptures together, verses 13 uh, down through 16. And if you're aware of the place that we are in church history, we're between some plagues, okay? And Moses has gone back to him from the Lord, and he's about to announce the seventh plague. And he's just come off of uh, Egypt experiencing the sixth plague. You may recall what that is. Boils. He's big sores on the body uh, that would be horribly painful and distressing to any rational person. Uh, But here in the middle of it, he's sent back to Pharaoh and he's going to announce uh, this terrible hailstorm. I don't know if you've ever experienced hailstorms. I have some really bad ones, some really large hail. And a couple years ago, going to Heidelberg, Had and I had our car beaten up by a bunch of golf ball sized hail. It was terrifying. You you never heard a little kid back in the back seat shouting the Lord's Prayer in desperation until that day. Hail. And so Moses is sent like a preacher from the Lord. Then Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord. Sounds like a preacher, doesn't it? Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. 
For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you hear the warning? Moses is like a preacher standing in the pulpit and he's calling down sin. He is saying very sincerely to Pharaoh, you are oppressing the people of God and the Lord would have you release them to turn from what you're doing to stop and to release them. Moreover, the Lord told him to say this, I could have wiped you and all of your people out with a great and horrible disease all at once, but I haven't done it. Release them. Do what I'm telling you to do. Respond to the word of God. Do the things that you're being confronted with by the word of God. And what does Pharaoh do? He doesn't do it. Not only that, the Lord warns him. He tells him when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. He says, go and hide all your cows. All your sheep. It's going to be big enough chunks of ice to kill them. Do what I'm telling you. And the word of the Lord is going graciously to the already hard Pharaoh. He's ignored the word of God time and time again. You recall who Pharaoh thinks he is. He thinks he's God. He thinks he's in control of his life, his kingdom, and everything within it. He's not going to have any God from Israel tell him what to do. He's going to do what he wants. And he has a hard heart against the Lord. And the Lord says, if you don't respond, guess what? It's coming again. And it's going to be progressively worse. And so the plagues come. One after another. And in the hard heart of Pharaoh, he gets harder. More angry. More venomous towards the Lord. And unrelenting until the Lord breaks him. And the people are released. It's a thing that you see. That the act of God against him in providence. Drives him into a hardness. That he already had. Because of a sinful heart. That hated God. And refused to submit to him. What's the point? Why is Paul bringing up Pharaoh? Well, it's because the Lord had a purpose even in the hardened heart of Pharaoh. The Lord was sovereign even to this man. The Lord could turn the hearts of kings like a river, the scriptures say. But according to Pharaoh, even after the word came once and again and again and ten times over and there's no response, no reception, no repentance, no turning, none of it. The means of God's appointment, his grace, his word and providence coming again and again through the mouth and the tongue of a preacher. Nonetheless, he does not move. And God says, yeah, Pharaoh, I know why you're hardened in heart. And guess what? You're not controlling the show. Even your hardness is under my power. And you're hardened so that I can display to you the extent of my power that all the earth would see. And you say, that's hard. That's really tough. But friend, that is the scriptures consistently old to New Testament. Cover to cover the God of heaven. And he could have, if it had pleased him, Turn that hard heart of Pharaoh into a pliable and redeemed and living heart. It didn't please him to do it. It served God's purpose to display his glory in all the earth. 
that he didn't redeem him. Double predestination. It is about God's purpose. He has purpose in all things, even in salvation. He displayed his justice in the utter humiliation and the killing of his son so that the world would see him high and lifted up, a king enthroned by nails on a cross bleeding out before a watching world, hated, derided, mocked, and it served the purposes of God to atone for sin and to also show even the horrible hardness of the lost who spat upon him and offered him sour wine. He said, what do I do with this, Pastor? Where is some, where's something I can take away from this? Some application from the purpose of God in election, his purposes being high, both to the redeemed and to the damned. I want to tell you, friend, you need to be careful not to commit the evangelical missed emphasis. What do I mean by that? It seems to me that the church today very often considers man as the very center of the work of salvation. That all of the purposes of God are wrapped around you, that you are the apex of all of his work, that you are the thing that he's trying to do, that if salvation were a painting, you'd be the subject, and that is simply not the case. In salvation, God is the one being shown. It is his glory reaching the heights of the heavens and the depths of the earth so that if you are looking on, who is it that you should see in the wonder and the majesty of his person? His eternal son, Jesus Christ. And all, all of the wonderful attributes of the Father and the Spirit So that in the cross and in salvation, you consider God and his kindness and his justice, his mercy and his holiness, his grace and his satisfaction and his love to you. He is the one depicted. It's about him. It's not about you. And the reality of it is, and that we should praise him for this, is that it pleases him wonderfully and sweetly to show himself gloriously And that he loved us and gave his son for us. He's glorified in your salvation. Even though you're not the primary depiction being shown within it. What a wonderful and amazing grace. You know, I told you in the introduction of this sermon, these are hard doctrines but they're also sweet. They're high and they're also deep. The purity of the love of God that he loved you because he is loving. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 3. What a magnificent grace that you and I have. And what a wonderful truth that our salvation is about him and that we receive every gift from him. And that our salvation brings us back to him. That we would forever enjoy him and be loved by him. Let us pray together. God of heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we praise you for its clarity. 
And Lord, we also marvel at its incomprehensibility. Father, we ask that you would minister to us, help us to be people that would hear your word and believe it, and would seek to be disciples that would delight in you because of what you show us in the scriptures. Father in heaven, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.